each of these campaigns, and there's like five or six very viable campaigns that are on the ground, they're contacting voters, they're organizing. Bloomberg is spending insane amount of money on TV communicating messages to voters. That does include climate. So you've got people organizing on climate, you know, throughout the campaigns. We've always talked about how do we make this more real for the average American? How do we educate them about this issue? That process is happening as a part of this presidential campaign. And we're off to the races. The Democratic primary started slow off the blocks in Iowa, but the nomination process is now well underway following the New Hampshire vote. So what have we learned so far in this election? Where have we seen climate and energy play in and what's to come next? We discuss the latest and arguably the most consequential election in US history, or at least the most contentious. Plus, we touch on a handful of energy policy updates on this week's episode of Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I am Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. We're all together for the first time, I think, in 2020, here with my two co-hosts. That's not true. All together in 2020? I I don't think I've been here with you guys. What? A lot of remote recording. Didn't we do like a happy New Year's when we were all together? We, no. Yeah. Did, was that December that we did Victoria's oh, party? Oh, you're right. That was like right before I left for a month. And that was fun. God, this year is going by so fast. And indeed, last time we were getting together was to say goodbye to our producer, Victoria Simon. If you're listening to this, we miss you. Thank you so much for all that you've done to help us out. She is now off working on sustainability issues for Mayor Garcetti here in Los Angeles. So anyway, those voices that you're hearing on the line there are... It's not that important to you, Julia, or you forgot we were together. <laughs> you are that important to me, Brandon. I wiped it from <laughs> my memory. I have the memory. socks to prove it. You have the socks. The socks with each other's faces on them. Absolutely. No, uh, you, you're very important to me, Brandon. I'm sorry that I forgot. Um, she All says right. dismissively. <laughs> Can we move on now? Way. I'm just trying to get to the I introduction. I saved the card that Julia gave me for uh, Christmas because it was like she said something nice to me, and I was like, I'm gonna like keep this. Guys, I'm I am a waspy lady. I hide those emotions. I tamp yes. them down. I only put them in written form once a year. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the voices you heard there are Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat. He's a partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. And Shane Skelton, a Republican partner at S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. Okay, guys, we're here the day after the New Hampshire primary. Coming out of that, we had Senator Bernie Sanders uh, tied with Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And this follows on from the Iowa. Tied in delegates, not tied in the popular in vote. Delegates, correct. Following on after the fiasco in Iowa, which you detailed for us uh, last week, Brandon, where do we even have the final final results from that? I don't know. All we know My now. My understanding is that you do not. We do not. We do. We don't know. We do know that so far, uh, Pete Buttigieg is up slightly on delegates, but Bernie Sanders is dominating on the popular vote. And so, lots to unpack here around what that means for uh, overall momentum for which for each candidate where the democratic party wants to go and sort of who's going to be the climate candidate going forward and how much this that issue actually plays as we continue uh down this road 
So first, I guess I want to go to you, Brandon. What are your thoughts on the Bernie momentum coming out of New Hampshire? We should note that he did not win as much of a commanding uh, majority as he did in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. And so people are saying that points to Democrats really wanting a more moderate candidate. The fact that Amy Klobuchar had a sort of surprise surge in New Hampshire. So she and Buttigieg capturing a, a lot of votes there shows that maybe people are really looking for a more moderate person, but just don't have that candidate yet. Or is it just because we have so many people in the field, votes are getting fractured, Bernie really is the guy with the momentum? What's your read on it? Buckle up. We're going to be in for a long <laughs> ride. <laughs> uh, we're going to sort this out, and it's probably going to be messy. Um, what do you mean by that? I think um, it's this is going to go on for a long time. It could go all the way to the Democratic Convention in Milwaukee. Um, here's what I think we know just from the early two states. And again, these are not representative of the Democratic Party. There's like all Very these issues with the like caucus. <laughs> yes. So I, there are certain things I think that we can extract, uh, but others, you know, that are not representative of, I think, what's going to happen going forward um, once we get to more states, larger states, you know, more representative of the Democratic Party. Uh, but I would say we know Bernie's in it because he's won the popular vote in both states and he has money. He's a fundraising machine. We know Bloomberg is in it because he's got unlimited money. He's surging in the national polls. Uh, I almost he, forget he's in the race until suddenly he like flashes back which, into mind. <laughs> which is awesome because you can't lose a, a fight you don't enter, right? And yeah. so Biden is now a big loser. We don't know if Bloomberg would have been or wouldn't have been, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, he is he, he is surging in the national polls. And uh, this will come down to a delegate-by-delegate delegate battle. Uh, I happen to know a lot about this because I was on the Obama delegate team for a while. It's very complicated. This is why you see in these elections where uh, it's our own version of like the electoral college uh, where you have certain candidates like Bernie winning the popular vote but not winning the delegate. Uh, yeah, people love that. <laughs> oh, it is so confusing. And so there are pledge- ironic in your party, by the way. Totally ironic. Uh, you know, it's crazy in my view but you have you know pledge delegates you have super delegates which is like the establishment um and so we don't have winner take all states uh in the democratic party uh primary so what can happen is once you this is how obama won the 08 primary is once you establish like a pledge delegate lead uh at a certain amount it gets very hard to catch up because it's not winner take all you can't make up a lot of ground quickly and it will be very hard i, I have think. to say I'm going to blame my Canadian roots that I don't even know exactly what that means. When you get a pledge delegate, hard to change. Like what, how do you get there? So the way the delegates are apportioned and stop me if this gets super, super nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> you asked. I asked. <laughs> now you're I asked. I asked. For our listeners, if you really want to learn it, there's a book out there that very few people have read called Magic 8 written by Jeff Berman, uh, who is Obama's delegate guru. I play a large part in that book. Oh, um, but it's on Amazon for probably a couple pennies. Royalties? <laughs> yeah, you can learn. You can learn all about delegates. Okay, give us the one minute version. One minute version is delegates are apportioned uh, by congressional district and by statewide vote, and then you have certain like number of you know super delegates for every state. That's like your members of Congress, your governor, your your party leaders. Essentially, they do not vote on the first round this time, and so pledge delegates get you know signed by like last night you know there's two congressional districts in new hampshire you have to get threshold in each congressional district and statewide to get delegates so 
threshold is normally 15%. So because Elizabeth Warren and, and Joe Biden didn't get 15% in either congressional district or statewide, they didn't get any delegates, right? So so this comes down to like a congressional by congressional district sort of battle and then the statewide vote matters. But the upshot is it's hard to amass large numbers of delegates at a time because it's not winner take all by each state. So if you get a lead of like 50 to 100 to 150 delegates in the Democratic you know, primary, it becomes very hard to overcome that unless the superdelegates would come in over the top. What happens to delegates that are assigned to a candidate who drops out? So they they have to remain pledged to their candidate on the first round vote at the Democratic convention. Even if their candidate doesn't exist anymore. Correct. This is my understanding. And then on this but if nobody reaches, you know, you see if you're watching cable news, you see in that they keep having you have to get one thousand nine hundred and ninety one, you know, delegates to win the nomination. That's that's how you become the Democratic nominees. If you get nineteen ninety one votes, right, from the delegates. And so if nobody reaches that on the first round vote which is becoming increasingly likely, then all of those pledged delegates can vote for whoever they want. It's including like the ones vote. who still have a candidate in? Yes, including the ones that are pledged to a certain candidate. And then the superdelegates can vote on the second round. I'm sure this all makes sense for a reason, but it sounds like a way too many PhDs got together and like, this is the way to do it. No one will ever understand. Well, I think the issue for the <laughs> we'll Democrats is that like, you know, if Bernie is winning going into Milwaukee, the number, the pledge delegates, right, uh, from all these different state primaries. And then, you know, the superdelegates could come in and vote in the second round and give it to somebody else like Bloomberg, because let's say Bloomberg's trailing by like 100 delegates to Bernie and pledge delegates. And then a bunch of superdelegates come in and vote. That can cause some real drama within the Democratic Party. And I think a lot of people are wrestling with that. So, yeah, I mean, how would that be perceived within the party if you had these super super delegates stepping in, say, going for a Bloomberg over Bernie? Like, would that tear the party apart? Like Civil War. Civil War. Which is crazy because Bernie... That's part of the process, right? But but Bernie's refused to be a Democrat his whole career. That's what I don't get about, you know, people talk about how Trump kind of took over the Republican Party. Um, Trump, for you know, better or worse, registered as a Republican and ran as a Republican. So when he follows our rules and wins, he's the winner. Bernie has intentionally stiff-armed the Democratic Party. If I were the Democrats, I would have no problem saying, hey, you're one of us or you're not. Get out. I wouldn't give him committee assignments in the Senate ever. And I wouldn't allow him to participate in the delegate game in the primary. It doesn't make sense to me. That'll be the broader question for me is if he is not the nominee ultimately, Will he really get behind the Democratic Party and will his supporters, a lot of them climate activists, ultimately get behind the Democratic uh, nominee? And I don't just mean get behind like a lot of people will still show up, but like bring it on the energy front, because that's what a Democrat nominee is probably going to need to be Trump. So will you get that same energy and push the way that the Sunrise Movement is bringing it right now for Bernie, which has been a lot of his success in Iowa and New Hampshire has been climate activists bringing out young people. They're more than just climate. They're really mobilizing that whole generation. We so, need yeah. to, and then you have to pivot quickly because, you know, meanwhile, Donald Trump is sitting there, you know, setting up his campaign operation, you know, and uh, spending his money, raising it, like, like to make that pivot quickly and to heal and to be organized uh, will be 
challenging. The Democrats are doing themselves a huge disservice. And I realize it's out of people's control. I mean, you can't control who runs and how they run and how many delegates they get. I was stunned when I saw that Donald Trump has a 49% approval rating, which is higher than he's ever had, even the day after election. More stunning what I heard this morning, though, I think they said it was Gallup. I can't remember exactly, but it was a credible poll. It wasn't, you know, a Fox News poll or something like that. That 65% of all Americans, not Republicans, of all Americans say that they are more financially secure and feel like their life is going better than it was three years ago. That doesn't necessarily always convert to the ballot box, but that's a very, very high number to overcome for a Democratic challenger. It's been a couple of bad weeks. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I'm glad that Americans are feeling more financially secure. That's a good thing. But um, <laughs> I think that one silver lining in this what could be long drawn out Democratic battle is I saw this in 2008 uh, when I was part of the Obama campaign, is when you have these highly competitive uh, elections in each of these states, you are organizing on the ground and you are getting your message out, you know, in each of these states. So, you know, each of these campaigns, and there's like five or six very viable campaigns that are on the ground, they're contacting voters, they're organizing. Bloomberg is spending insane amount of money on TV communicating messages to voters. That does include climate. So you've got people organizing on climate, you know, throughout the campaigns. We've always talked about how do we make this more real for the average American? How do we educate them about this issue? That process is happening as a part of this presidential campaign. They're seeing Bloomberg ads about climate. They're seeing Bernie Sanders rallies where he's talking about climate. You know, they're seeing Elizabeth Warren plans on climate that she's talking about. So like this could be a good thing. And, and all that voter contact can then be mobilized in the general election against Donald Trump. When we when we pivoted to the general election with Obama, we had Hillary's operation, our operation, the Democratic Party, all that could come together and mobilize those voters. But in the meantime, though, you have this issue, which other pundits have, have talked about, which is very similar to the Republican Party in 2016, where they just couldn't pick the alternative to the candidate with the, you know, super hard, solid base. And they just, even if a majority of people really wanted that alternative, they just couldn't pick one and it couldn't get that momentum behind them. So I wonder if that's where the Democratic Party ends up as well, similar to the Republicans. <laughs> Before we go on, we have to take a minute to thank our new sponsor, EarthX. This April marks the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, and a perfect way to celebrate is at the EarthX Expo, Conference, and Film Festival in Dallas, Texas. EarthX is an international nonprofit environmental forum with a mission to educate and inspire people to take action towards a more sustainable future. On April 23rd to the 26th, EarthX will assemble educators, students, businesses, nonprofits, global leaders, and citizens to explore sustainable solutions to today's most pressing challenges. And you can take part too. Simply visit earthx.org or click the link in our show notes to learn more about the jam-packed schedule put together to celebrate Earth Day's 50th anniversary in Dallas. Register to attend your favorite expo, conference, or film fest events, and we will see you there. Well, let's, let's zero in for a minute on the climate aspect of this for the sake of the show. I, I personally believe that when you look at the future right now, um, it's hard to see how anyone beats Donald Trump or any one of these people beat Donald Trump. So that, that sort of, but that could change tomorrow. But from the climate perspective, I actually think conventional wisdom that the person with the most progressive or most aggressive climate policy is the best for climate. I actually think if you fast forward and let's operate under the assumption that, that President Trump is going to lose. So let's operate under the assumption you're going to have a Democratic president. 
I actually think a Bernie Sanders who might have the most progressive climate policy or, you know, some other candidate who might have might have the most aggressive climate policy will be unable to manipulate the the levers in Congress that allow you to enact some of those those large priorities. Whereas a Pete Buttigieg or a Michael Bloomberg or someone who just seems a little bit more moderate, whether true or false on most issues, might be able to execute sort of a pro growth climate strategy that I think, you know, at least moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats might be a little bit more amenable to than saying, okay, now we got to figure out a way to execute the Green New Deal and legislative text. I think we might see more progress on climate with a moderate from either party than we would see from someone who is very, you know, viewed as progressive. Unless you on aim high and you end up with the moderate solution. It's interesting. I could provide a little perspective on this. You know, I was in D.C. last week for these Green New Deal meetings, and I can tell you that behind the scenes, there's a lot of work happening across many different uh, stakeholders, including environmental organizations, from the establishment environmental organizations to you know frontline communities, and they're working behind the scenes. And I was part of discussions where we were modeling out, okay, what happens if a progressive Democrat wins, you know, and you have a split Senate? What happens if a moderate Democrat wins? What happens if a progressive Democrat won, runs on climate and then loses? To Trump, what does that do? Then, yeah. wh- then where where do we go? Where does so, climate end up in that going so forward? <laughs> the, the, the upshot is, people are thinking about. They're making those plans. They're gearing up those organizations. They're thinking about many different scenarios, how they could play out, and what we're gonna see. I think no matter what is in 2021, there's gonna be a lot of activity um, in Washington. Yeah. Well, one question on that is last week we talked about the Democrats plan to get to net zero emissions by 2050. This is coming from the House. And you were going to see how that played. That proposal came from more established Democrats, if you will. Did that come up at all in the meetings? It's not a Green Dude deal proposal, but it is bold. Yeah. Was it bold enough? I think what I heard is that with particularly frontline communities, carbon tax isn't something that they are really excited about because they still see, you know, they're bearing the brunt of pollution. Many of these fossil fuel plants are put in communities of color. Um, and so um, the, f- the, f- the fact that the framework has shifted in democratic policymaking sort of away from focusing only on a carbon tax to like standards, investments, investments where communities of color can, can participate in that and benefit from that is a difference in the Democratic Party, and that is progress. And on that bill, Julia, I've spent a little more time with it since we last spoke. I actually think that when people kind of calm down and have a chance to <clears throat> read through the specific provisions, one of the things that they did a really good job of is I am personally in the camp of where you tell me if in 2050 we're going to have no fossil fuels, I just don't believe you. I'm not even saying I don't want that. I'm just saying that does not seem like a bite that we can take. And so I'm just going to reject your plan. This bill is interesting in that it allows for natural gas plants are super critical coal plants. Those would be plants that were built during the Obama administration that had, you know, all the protections that the Obama EPA put out there. If they exist just for a certain amount of time, I don't mean forever, but for a certain amount of time, it's just a little bit more expensive to operate them because you're paying for credits if there's a clean energy standard like in that bill, or you're paying a carbon tax if that comes up. That's something that I think most reasonable people can say, okay, I know this is going to cost a little more, but maybe the larger goal is worth it. Let's talk about this. Let's at least talk about it. As opposed to saying, I don't believe your solution is viable, therefore I'm done having this conversation. So I actually think we're making progress we don't even see. I mean, Republicans introduced a climate bill today. Again, you're talking about sustainable building materials and planting trees. I get it. That's not going to change the, the world. But they're talk- They're introducing a bill and billing it as a climate bill. 
that did not happen before. And, and that would have been laughed at, uh, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. So I think we're plugging in the right direction. Even Shane, though here's my like question it. to you on this. Do you think, I mean, ultimately to solve this issue, do you agree with the fact that we probably have to take on the fossil fuel industry? And do is there any Republican proposal that suggests that that like has to happen? Um, so I'll answer the two questions separately. Yes, I believe we have to take on the fossil fuel industry. I don't think we have to take them on as aggressively as others do. I think there needs to be a lot of pressure, maybe some some shaming when appropriate, to get companies to do what BP announced they're going to do, which is really start to think about not just their own operations, but the people who use their products and what that footprint looks like. I don't think we have to wipe fossil fuels off the map. I'm, I'm a fossil fuel supporter in certain circumstances, but yes, I think they need to be confronted with the reality that the world is changing and you know, trying to spend money and lobby to stop that from happening is not an acceptable uh, path forward. Secondarily, um, no, I don't see any Republicans taking them on, but they're going to have to, and they're going to have to figure it out quickly for two reasons. One, the fossil fuel giants, the clean ones, especially the European-based ones, they're starting to do this anyway. So you almost look stupid if you're pushing against a company wanting to become cleaner. Two, donors are, you know, younger people are becoming richer. Uh, donors are more, even Republican donors are more progressive on issues like climate. And there's going to be a time where people are going to say, are you defending fossil fuels because you care about the economy? Or are you defending fossil fuels just for the sake of doing it because that's a force of habit? And people are going to have to confront that. And I'm not saying tomorrow, but I think it'd be entirely reasonable for the Republican Party as a whole to say, we need fossil fuels. And also, we can't just spew emissions into the air as if nothing's happening. Coming from the Abu Dhabi conference, I was that an executive from Chevron is like, we need to get way more proactive on the good that we do for the world. And so they're aware that they are under the, you know, under the microscope and they're mounting, you know, a response to that. Now, whether they're talking about investing in a PR campaign or whether they're investing in actual carbon reductions, you know, time will tell. On a related note, when it comes to activists and, and people getting animated, a friend of mine told me who works on these issues that way more than a climate disaster, anger at fossil fuel industry, executives and companies mobilizes people way more. People love being pissed off way more than they like being scared. <laughs> it's true. But think about this. This is something that I really didn't process until um, a couple of weeks ago when I was just looking at my stock portfolio and what I bought and sold. So I bought Exxon at like $90 in like 2009 and sold it at like 120. I'm making that up, but it was something like that a few years later. And the thought of Exxon ever dropping below 100 was absurd. It's in the 40s right now, meaning that it's lost half of its value. So here would be my question. Why is it in the 40s? I think it's in the 40s because investors understand that there's pressure to address climate change. I think it's in the 40s partially because of the coronavirus and that other stuff. But I think it's in the 40s because there's divestment campaigns. There's a lot of reasons people should not feel confident investing in major fossil fuel companies. So my question to Exxon Jim Kramer would be- Jim Kramer says it's over. Well, yeah. Well, right, did you see that, Shane? I did see that. But here would be my question. Had they invested aggressively- in decarbonization five years ago, and it cost them a lot of money and it cost their shareholders money. Maybe the stock drops to 90, but then they're sort of shielded from some of this, hey, we hate you. And as a result, we're divesting. I just think the planning has been awful for these companies. Yeah. I think they could have preserved their stock price far better than they have now and protected their investors by actually making these investments before they were required. It's so hard though, right? The David Crane example at NRG was kind of the like first instance of an executive trying to pivot a, a power company predominantly uh, and then that didn't go over well. We just saw Isabelle Cochet, the head of Angie, the French 
mega multinational uh, removed from her position for allegedly not going fast enough on the energy transition, but really it sounds like for not producing enough returns amid the energy transition. So these executives are in a, a tight place and that's on the power side, let alone oil and gas uh, extraction. BP did make that announcement saying that they're going to, you know, address, go for net zero emissions by 2050 or sooner and not only address their own direct emissions, but their scope three. But we also have to know that BP is actually behind its its peers in making investments in clean energy technology. So we have to put this announcement in context. It also talks about offsets, which is not the same as making actual carbon reduction, but rather offsetting those emissions that it produces. Plus, it's unclear what's going to happen in the next 10 years. This is a long-term plan to 2050. But in the meantime, does BP actually materially reduce its oil and gas production? That was not exactly made clear. So still a lot of questions coming out of this plan while it was you know, a noteworthy change, of course. A couple of the things in that announcement that caught me by surprise were one saying they were going to reduce scope three emissions by 50%. So for our listeners, that basically means they're saying when you use the gasoline or when you use a product that they produce, they want to find a way to, to reduce the emissions from that 50%. Secondarily, they said that it's not enough to say we're going to do this. They want to lobby in favor of climate friendly policies and have said they will review all their trade association memberships depending on how those groups are lobbying. I'm not ready to, to commit to saying they're definitely going to do those things. But that type of aggressive action from a company of that size could really have an influence on how um, advocacy efforts in Washington, D.C. carry forward and how members of Congress, especially on the Republican side, start to view these arguments when they're coming from BP and Chevron, not, you know, a, a, an environmental, the Sunrise Movement. Two other quick things I want to touch on, bringing it back to the primary. First is Pennsylvania. There's been reports recently about how fracking is perceived there, even among Democratic voters and people saying any candidate that supports a fracking ban will lose Pennsylvania. And if you lose Pennsylvania, what does that mean for the election overall? I mean, Brandon, do you have insight on this? I and mean, there's a lot of labor groups there, people saying they just can't get down with a Democrat who would write off that resource wholesale. I think it depends, you know, on the Democratic nominee. There's just certain trade-offs that you'll get with whomever the nominee is. So if it's somebody like Bernie Sanders uh, versus somebody like um, a Amy Klobuchar, who's a little bit more friendly uh, towards natural gas, you know, something like an Amy Klobuchar would be more attractive to uh, some of those uh, independent, you know, moderate voters in Pennsylvania who uh, have benefited from fracking and uh, would be attracted to uh, Klobuchar approach. But, you know, if you if you're thinking about that other, you know, the what is it, the daily that covered this, that podcast, you know, the other half of it, they had young people on who were like, we do not want fracking. We do not want to be a part of it. We don't want it in our state. And so that's what you get with the Bernie coalition. You know, you might have, you know, a higher turnout of young people who are motivated because they don't want fracking. So there are these just sort of trade-offs, like certain candidates are going to have greater appeal to moderate swing independent voters. Certain candidates are going to have more appeal to the base. Sure, sure, sure. But if you end up with Bernie Sanders, who has very explicitly opposed fracking, does that lose you Pennsylvania? I don't think so, because he may have a crazy turnout at Penn State University and Penn and all these colleges where these where kids are really motivated by this. And it also you know, depends on how much people understand nuance. I mean, you heard some voters say, some Trump voters say, yes, I didn't agree with X, Y, and Z, but I voted for him anyway because I know X, Y, and Z are not possible. It's just sort of window dressing. So banning fracking is a perfect example of you can ban fracking on federal lands immediately as a president, immediately. 
to ban fracking as a practice in Pennsylvania, where there are no or very limited federal lands, you need Congress. So some voters might just say, I like Bernie and he can't do that anyway. So whatever. It just depends on how sophisticated your voter is. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Trump administration is trying to and is reducing the national monuments to open up more oil and gas uh, exploration there. National parks. Very few people love national parks as much as me. And I I sincerely mean that. I'm actually watching a Nat Geo special on all of them now to get my son educated. Love national parks. But here's the thing. Everyone is treating the Obama years as like year zero. They'll say like, oh, Trump reduced this monument. Yeah, well, he, but, yeah, but Obama expanded them. But I'm saying he reduced them to larger than they were pre-Obama. He just reduced, you know, some of Obama's work. So we, we have to look yeah, at things Yeah, but the point was to try and reduce the amount of oil and gas extraction Understood. for climate Understood. reasons. Understood. I'm just saying when people say he's drastically reducing these monuments, they make it sound like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt had all these great ideas and Donald Trump is rolling them back. That's not what's happening. He's just rolling back some of the expansions under the Obama administration, which you can say is wrong, but that's a very different thing than pretending like for hundreds of years it's been one way and now it's a different way. That's totally fair. I mean, I think the question there for me is just politically, will that resonate with some Western voters? I don't know. There's a lot of support for public lands. And I think, you know, people appreciated that there was uh, the expansion. My experience on Capitol Hill where this was one of my issues was far more nuanced. Um, Westerners love public lands for all the reasons you you understand. But Westerners also hate the federal government telling them how they can be productive and create economic activity on those lands. So it's very it's much mm. more nuanced than I think we could just point out in this podcast. Good. Interesting insight. And then my last questions for for Brandon. So, you know, Andrew Yang and Colorado Senator Michael Bennett have dropped out of the race. Biden, we know, ditched New Hampshire early. And but... Val Patrick. And Val Patrick. OK. Is he out? Is he out? He's out. Was he in? Good question. <laughs> I saw press release once. <laughs> Biden, you know, cut ties early in New Hampshire. He's gunning for South Carolina as his redemption. Warren, you know. Brandon, where does she fit in? And, you know, are you thinking about who your number two is? Ouch. What? <laughs> it's my job to ask questions. <laughs> um, look, you know, as Senator Warren said last night, 98% of the delegates have yet to be allocated. Um, and you saw Amy Klobuchar had a great debate Friday night. And she probably gained 15 points in New Hampshire or somewhere along those lines because of that de- debate performance. There's a couple of debates coming up. So there are still opportunities for candidates like Elizabeth Warren to change the trajectory of the race. You know, But those windows are getting smaller because um, once Super Tuesday happens, uh, a lot of delegates will be apportioned. So um, I think that's going to be a really meaningful day for a couple of these candidates like Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, they, they will they will have to do better in on Super Tuesday. We should note that Warren was apparently the climate candidate in Iowa. She won. The people who identify climate as a number one issue. I think she she won that vote. Got it. Have you started thinking about a number two? Would you even venture there? Well, this is where it's really interesting, you know, and I don't know how representative I am of, of others in the party, but um you know, I I just like so many of them. I, when I watched the debate on Friday night, like I thought they all did great. I you thought, don't feel at all torn because there are reports of people going to their police station being like, I don't know who to vote for. I'm so overwhelmed by the choices. They're not what you're saying. They're not excited. They're just like overwhelmed. But the thing about me, it, it, I can get as equally excited. I mean, Bernie Sanders. You are very excitable. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg are like very different candidates. I could get excited about either of them if they become the nominee. That sounds inconsistent. I'm not putting words in your mouth. That sounds inconsistent with what we've discussed over the past like three years. I didn't know you were a Bernie bro or could could potentially be one. 
look, he wants to shake up the system and, you know, he's a huge climate activist. He embraced the Green New Deal. He has the most bold, ambitious, you know, Green New Deal plan, um, you know, along with Senator Warren. So I can get excited about that. I can also get excited that Mike Bloomberg spent a lot of his personal money to, you know, on the Beyond Coal campaign. And he's been a gun right, you know, or an activist against guns. Like there are things about all these candidates that I really like. And if you watch what's happening in D.C., just in the last two weeks, the vote on no witnesses, what's happening at the DOJ, you know, marching people out of the White House for, you know, whistleblowing. I mean, this, it is so bad. I am so afraid of what is happening there. The, the, it's so clear to me the path that the president is going down, which is an authoritarian path. It's very much like what goes on in Russia. And I am terrified of that. So any of these candidates is going to be such a contrast to what is going on with president trump i think we should also point out that no matter who's president for you know for the next four years congress generally needs to reassert itself i mean there are things that trump has done that are clearly uncool like i would argue that getting involved in a doj sentencing matter is pretty uncool um i don't know if uncool is the right word i think it's pretty bad right Uh, but that was for roger stone um, but and it was for lying to Congress. So seven to nine years is way too much for lying to Congress. But that's aside and apart from the point that the president himself should never intervene in a DOJ case. But the other part of it is Congress as a body, Republican or Democrat, needs to assert itself and, and, and provide oversight. And the Democrats, I think, were really disappointing for the institution by saying, we don't want to take the time to go through this investigation. We're going to punt it over to the Senate and then blame them for not doing our job. If we really wanted to see witness testify, if we really wanted to see a case against President Trump, it's the House, not just Democrats. It's the House's job to provide the evidence for an impeachment trial. They didn't do that. And then they blame the Senate for having but no But they evidence. wouldn't testify. Mulvaney that's what, and Bolton are all That's why we have three co-equal branches of government. Um, that's why we have three co-equal branches of government. The, these cases went to the courts and the House was too impatient to wait because it probably would have gone past the election. It's funny. So, you know, it's you either know, a political thing or it's a right thing for our country thing, but it can't be both. It's too convenient. I sat in, you know, a couple board meetings when I was on the East Coast and many of my fellow board members are, you know, business folks, investors, probably more libertarian. And it just struck me how comfortable people are, uh, you know, with the American democracy in the sense that, like, they don't think that there anything could happen to it. Um, they don't. They think we've had worse times. Camp. I know you are, and and it really terrifies me because there is a pattern here, uh, and in other countries like Russia and China, there are fake, you know, con- congresses. They have like their own version of the parliament and senate that are totally at the whim of the authoritarian leader and i am nervous as we erode these norms like shane you always talk about how we're a republic you know the the idea of the republic is that these wise learned elected officials are supposed to step in when the fabric of democracy is at stake and that is not happening that is a failure right now i actually agree with you and that was the purpose of my complaint in saying in our system of government there are three co-equal branches and if the executive branch overreaches it's congress's job to check the executive branch if there's a dispute between what check is appropriate the courts sort that out democrats just weren't willing to be patient and so they uh, they uh, they they just didn't 
perform their duty to perform a full investigation, go through the court process like you would have to do if you were suing someone for stealing your sneakers or anything else. They weren't willing to go through the process. That is them giving up on our system. That is not anything other than that. The, the administration was clear they would provide the witnesses if the court compelled them to. Democrats chose not to take that route. Well, what I'm hearing is that a lot of that drama on Capitol Hill is not even really coming up on the campaign trail. So we get really excited about it. A lot of there's a dedicated core group of people. I disagree. Trump's approval rating went to record highs the same week he was impeached. Probably. Or, 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 I'm sorry. Acquitted. Yeah, there's definitely people who would edge up on that front. I'm actually speaking more from the, the Democrat up at the side. Oscars. Brad Pitt's speech. Pretty good. People are paying attention, don't get me wrong, but this is according to like reporting uh, from like the press pool who's with candidates, Democratic candidates, saying that they're just not going there on this stuff. That doesn't resonate with voters. Gets a lot of, uh, gets the base really fired up, but a lot of people are still looking for the answers to their kitchen table issues, as we've talked about. So, and so that's where I think we should leave it right now. Uh, we've covered a lot of different that's stuff. Nice, that was a nice wrap up. Yeah, as the best I could do. Um, and so, yeah, we should leave it there for now and turn to our final segment. Uh, say something nice. Now it's time for Say Something Nice, our segment of the show where our Democrat-Republican co-hosts say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, over to you first. All right. So my Say Something Nice is about Michael Bloomberg and not for probably the reasons you guys would think. I hate our current primary system on both sides. I hate our um, campaign finance laws. I think they're awful. And I think Michael Bloomberg is doing something really fun and exciting by just thinking about if you started from scratch. How would you run a campaign and how would you finance it? Now, granted, he's a billionaire, but it could equally be true that another good candidate could have a billionaire buddy. And in this case, their billionaire buddy could give them you know, $10,800 or whatever the number is, same as anybody else, which makes no sense. So I just like the idea of starting from scratch and thinking, I'm a smart person. How do I get through this process in a non-conventional way? And so hat tip to him. I think it's going to be fun to watch. With a couple bajillion dollars, that's how you do it. <laughs> Brandon? My say something nice is, I mean, despite the fact that the Trump budget is horrible, you know, Republicans talk about their support for innovation. But if you read the president's budget proposal, it like it like. Right. But actual Republicans on, in Congress do allocate money through appropriations. Correct. So that's where I'm going, Julia. Thank okay. you for stealing my thunder. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm saying the DOE, uh, you know, the energy secretary there. Uh, they put forth an energy storage challenge to uh, support efforts to commercialize batteries uh, for storage. Um, and so they're taking some of the money appropriated to the DOE, expanding it, um, and issuing a challenge on energy storage, much like we did with solar and sunshot. And so it's a good way to harness different parts of the department, mobilize the industry behind a common goal. I've seen that succeed. I hope it succeeds with energy storage. This is a good step. Yeah, the Energy Storage Grand Challenge, I think, will be really interesting. We'll have an interview coming up with Daniel Simmons, uh, who is the head of the DOE's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, uh, talking a bit about that challenge. We should know that the, the DOE is under a little bit of fire for not having spent uh, around $823 million last year that Congress appropriated to it. Those funds were meant to go to boosting renewable energy, EVs, and efficiency programs. Uh, but it sounds like that uh, money has not been spent, at least according to Democrats on Capitol Hill. So both some good news coming out of the DOE and maybe a question mark there as to what's happening with their uh, the spending that was allocated to them on a bipartisan basis. And that is where we will end the show for now. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Remember, you can find Political Climate pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. We're also on Twitter at Polly underscore climate. We're going to be in hey, South... Hey, Julia. What? Are we on Shadow? 
I don't even know what that is. The Shadow app? What is it? That's the app that didn't work out of the Iowa Democratic Party, so <laughs> I hope we're not on that one. <laughs> yes. Uh, God, no. Gosh, no. I wonder if that company is even well, We get 2 anymore. million downloads through there a week. It's just that our numbers don't show that oh, because the app go. isn't properly communicating. <laughs> Thank you for it's landing that joke. We needed America, something there. <laughs> we're the biggest podcast in America that no one ever knew of. We're still waiting for the final results. Um, <laughs> and final note, we will be in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest on March 14th. It's a Saturday. We're on at 9.30 a.m. We'll be talking about... Uh, human behavior and climate science and the 2020 election with uh, Shwada Chakraborty, who is uh, with Adapt to Thrive, and she is a behavioral scientist. So that'll be a really exciting conversation. If you're going to be in Austin, do come to that. We'd love to see you, meet you, and grab a beer later. So that's it for now. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. 